On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard the news? The Indo Daily is up for a Listener's Choice Award. Head over to the irishpodcastawards.ie forward slash vote. You're listening to the Downfall series from the Indo Daily. And just to flag that the following episode contains graphic and disturbing details. Today on the Indo Daily. My name is Reva. And I'm a model, and we're in Jamaica this year. Be jealous, you can be jealous. <laughs> yes, you can win a million rand, that's always good. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I cried. I don't know how long I was there for. From baby amputee to Olympian, Oscar Pistorius, nicknamed Blade Runner, seemed to have it all. They call him the Blade Runner. The fastest man on no legs, Oscar Pistorius, redefining what it means to be a professional athlete. Cheering flashlights going all around the stadium and Oscar Pistorius is the Paralympic champion of 2012. But the South African athlete lauded and celebrated the world over for his achievements as a Paralympic athlete and Olympic sprinter, would soon become a fallen hero. The four bullets the runner fired through the locked toilet door ended the life of Reva Steenkamp, who was behind it. Just what the athlete was thinking when he picked up his 9mm pistol formed the backbone of the long-running trial. Since the killing of Reva Steenkamp, Oscar's then-girlfriend, on Valentine's Day in 2013, he's had a very public trial where he was charged with first manslaughter, allowed out on house arrest and then thrown back into jail when the conviction was changed to murder. The prosecutor finished by saying he was confident he'd done enough to prove that the athlete had deliberately killed his girlfriend. She locked herself into the toilet. You armed yourself for the sole purpose of shooting and killing her. That's not true, my lady. And and that's what you did. And now he's seeking early release from his sentence, arguing he has already served more than half of it enough to make him eligible for parole. Why did Oscar Pistorius pull the trigger? I'm Siobhan Maguire, and on today's episode of the Indo Daily, I'm joined by John Carlin, journalist and author of Chasing the Shadows, The Trials of Oscar Pistorius. 
John, your books have had uh, quite the impact. Playing the Enemy, Nelson Mandela and the Game That Made a Nation was published in 2008 and was later made into a very famous movie, Invictus, by the even more famous director, Clint Eastwood. And then it was Paul Greengrass, director of the Bourne films, who encouraged you to write about Pistorius. Yes, Paul Greengrass was a good pal of mine. We've known each other for many years. I knew him before he became famous and rocketed way beyond my pay grade. Um, but despite that, we remained friends. And it was he, he called me one day and just said, you know, hey, listen, you know, you know all about South Africa. This story is a huge story. Um, go and do a book about it. So I said, yes, sir. And off I went and did a book about it. And it was a very, very intense period of my life. My goodness. Such is the interest in the trial of Oscar Pistorius. There's often as much focus placed on the accused and his demeanour as there is on the evidence itself. What is it that you see? Uh, I see the, uh, supposedly the, the prosthesis legs of Mr Pistorius wearing socks, blood on the legs. Bloody images, such as this one of the prostheses worn by the Olympian on the night of the shooting, are by now commonplace. I mean, on the one hand, you know, the greatest intensity was in the courtroom. I was there pretty much every single day of the trial, which, which had some very harrowing moments. But in, in addition to that, I traveled um, all over South Africa talking to people. And I also traveled to Texas. I traveled to Boston. I traveled to Iceland and to Northern Italy for the book. Um, so it was, it was very, and then I had to see, write it and produce it, write pretty much on deadline. The day the verdict was given, I had to write my final words and flash it off. It was great rush to publish. So it was a very intense time and a really quite amazing experience. It is the most remarkable, remarkable story. It's one of those stories that if you were to propose it to a publisher as a, as a novel, as fiction, they'd say, get out of here. You're out of your mind. It has to be, it has to be true to be credible. The four bullets the runner fired through the locked toilet door ended the life of Reva Steenkamp, who was behind it. Just what the athlete was thinking when he picked up his 9mm pistol formed the backbone of the long-running trial. Yeah, because Oscar Pistorius is easily the most famous South African after Nelson Mandela. And before the shooting of Reva, this guy could do no wrong, John. No, he couldn't. I mean, you know, it is the most amazing story. I mean, I, I, I got to know... Um, his doctor very well, the guy who, who cut off his little legs, you know, because he was born with this genetic defect when he was 11 months old. And, you know, just the, the, the sheer extraordinary, you know, it's like something out of Greek mythology or something that you cut off this kid's legs and then he runs not just in the Paralympics, but in the Olympic Games and gets to the semi-finals of the 400 meters. Someone who was born without legs. Athlete of all time is going to take this gold medal. He's in a different league, and Oliveira is tying up. People are standing up, cheering, flashlights going all around the stadium, and Oscar Pistorius is the Paralympic champion of 2020. And you know, and he's handsome, and he's sort of you know muscular, and just you know every inch a hero. I mean, except of course, unless you removed his legs, that he was just you know rather a. As indeed happened during the trial, they showed him without his prosthetic legs. And he's this, you know, tiny little guy. But, but the thing is, he projected this sense of a sort of superhero ness, you know, with these extraordinary cheetah um, legs that he had. And um, he was at, at the London Olympics. He was after Usain Bolt. He was the face of the Olympic Games. He was the, the you know, his face was plastered all over the streets of London. He was seen as an absolute hero. And indeed, after the London Olympic Games, 
his future was set. He was going to have lots of money. Um, he was indeed planning to move in with Riva, probably marry her, you know, the beautiful model girlfriend. I mean, it was all absolutely perfect. And he was much loved in South Africa by black and white people alike. I mean, in that, he also had that in common with Mandela, that black and white South Africans loved him, idolized him equally. And there was this athlete who was really shining this positive light onto the country. It was a powerful message that certainly rang with Mandela. And then suddenly, for heaven's sake, on Valentine's Day, on Valentine's Day, he shoots dead his girlfriend. You absolutely could never make it up. Can you set the scene for us in those dark early hours of Valentine's morning in 2013? Well, I can set the scene, um, you know, on the strength of what Pistorius testified and what, you know, the various lawyers, prosecution and defense sort of deduced. Um, you know, they, they, they went to bed in Pistorius' home um, in, in Pretoria. Uh, he had these extraordinarily um, sort of thick and effective curtains that made the room absolutely, totally sort of blind dark. And then what exactly happened? Well, I mean, Pistorius' version is that he heard this noise in the bathroom, which was just down a little corridor outside his bedroom. Um, his version is that he assumed it was burglars, someone at like, that there was, there was some burglar that had come in through the bathroom window. And in the darkness, he says that he was not aware that Reva was not lying in bed next to him. He said that he thought she was lying in bed. And she said, and, she said, and he said that he said to her, look, hold on, hold on. Um, I'm going to go and deal with this. And he said, call the police, according to him. And he went and he heard these noises you know, behind the bathroom door. And he fired four shots. And the person inside died, who happened to be Reba. You know, his version is that it was just an absolute tragedy. And of course, if his version is true, and we don't know, but if his version is true, it is an absolutely atrocious tragedy. This woman who he adored, so he said, um, that he killed her by accident. I mean, it's just shocking. Um, but then, you know, there are all kinds of other speculations. The fact is that it's very, very important to bear this in mind. But even though an appeal court found him guilty of murder, it was never, ever established that he had deliberately killed Reva, right? It's very important to get that point clear, which a lot of people may not have grasped, that he was found guilty of murder because the, the, the supposition of the appeal court judges was that if you fired those four bullets with that powerful gun through a bathroom door, knowing there was someone behind it, um, you were going to be... Killing. You were going to have homicidal intention. I'm going to show you, Mr. Pasturius, it had the exact same effect, the bullet that went into her head. My lady, I was there that night. I... That's it. Oh. Have a look there, Mr. I know you don't want to because you don't want to take responsibility, but it's time that you look at it. Take responsibility for what you've done, Mr. Pistorius. My lady, I've, I've taken responsibility by me waiting and not wanting to live my life, but waiting for my time on this stand to tell my story for the respect of Riva and for myself. I've taken responsibility, but I will not look at a picture where I'm tormented by what I saw and felt that night. As I picked Riva up, my fingers touched her head. I remember I don't have to look at a picture. I was there. 
John, can we talk about life in South Africa in that year, in 2013? And Oscar, being a white man, is already in quite a privileged position. But where he was living at that time, you know, it was a highly secure complex, wasn't it? You know, how would intruders get into, you know, this gated fortress? Okay, Um, well, you asked me a couple of different things there. One, well, it was a time when President Jacob Zuma was in power, and Jacob Zuma has been responsible for the absolute moral and economic decay that South Africa continues to sort of plummet down today. Um, it was, uh, you know, it, 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 was, it, was, it was a bad time for South Africa. However, you know, if you had money, and this, the fact remains today that if you have money, you can live a pretty nice life and Mostly, it's white people who have money, although one change since Mandela has been that there are a lot of rich black people too. But above all, in that time, and still today, more so today, South Africa is kind of the Wild West. It's a very dangerous place. I mean, I lived there myself, and I've been back there many times, and it becomes progressively more dangerous. Now, you're saying uh, the complex where he was living in ought to have been uh, fully protected. Well, you know, 100% protected. There's no 100%. Especially, you know, there, there are a lot of very um, you know, cunning and assiduous criminals in South Africa who know how to get by. You know, the the plenty of, of you know sophisticated security systems that people use to try and protect themselves. And it is normal in South Africa to be paranoid. If you're not paranoid, you're missing the point. Now, you have to be always in a state of alertness. In the case of Pistorius, of course, because of his vulnerability, you know, when he wasn't wearing his prosthetic legs and running at 100 miles an hour, he was a very vulnerable person. Um, and he did have enemies. There are, there are people who didn't like him. He had mixed a little bit with a bit of a gangland crowd. And so it wasn't, you know, completely insane of him to imagine, if indeed his version is true, that there was, you know, someone um, breaking into his house. Is it kind of normal practice over there, John, for people to to have a gun in the house for protection? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, Pistorius was a bit of a, a bit of a gun now. There's got a lot of videos out there of him on shooting ranges, but that um, was hardly a sort of unique or eccentric um, hobby that he had. The guns, you know, young men like him in South Africa, a lot of them. Uh, carry guns. Can I just tell you one thing that I didn't mention in the book that I regretted only finding out about later? Namely, the following, that about nine months before Pistorius shot dead his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp, there was an uncannily similar case in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, about, I don't know, 300 uh, kilometers um, east of Johannesburg, where a doctor, actually a black doctor, uh, woke up in the middle of the night, heard a noise in the bathroom, got his gun, fired through the bathroom door, and killed his wife. This man who, who fired this gun, this doctor, he did not even go to trial. It was absolutely assumed that it was, as he said, an absolutely sort of tragic misunderstanding, a tragic accident. The circumstances were almost identical pretty much, you know, absolutely identical to Pistorius's. But because it was the wife with whom he'd been, you know, a long time and they had children, he was his story was immediately believed. 
In the case of Pistorius, it was the, the beautiful girlfriend with whom we'd only been together for three months. And so people start immediately in their minds creating an entirely different sort of narrative to the one involving this doctor. Cannot Not work. True, you find You did. Why are you getting emotional now? I did not fire a dreamer. The court accepted this and found him guilty of manslaughter, not murder, sentencing him to five years behind bars. During that trial, we saw a very different side to Oscar. So we just saw the shell of a man. He was very vulnerable, sobbing, uh, even retching. But unwittingly, the court was today twice shown graphic images of Riva Steenkamp's body. Oscar Pistorius's reaction can first be heard. It's this little piece down here. He then visibly retches. As he hides from the grim images shown to the court, he's then passed a bucket. You know, the superhero converted into a you know, sort of very, very, very diminished um, Clark Kent, sort of lacerating to, to watch. And, you know, and of course, what's so interesting is. You know, contrary to the anticipation of the defense lawyers, gave a verdict, the judge, and there's not a jury system there, the judge decides that, that she, she judged basically in his favor. She said, she's, you know, the prosecution tried to argue not only that it was murder, but that he'd actually deliberately, knowingly killed Reva. And she completely, um, absolutely ruled that out in her final judgment of just being there was no basis to, 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 to sustain that argument. And she found him guilty of manslaughter. And it was only afterwards that there was an appeal by the prosecution. And then, ironically enough, an appeal court comprised only of white judges. I can't remember if it was three or five, but they were all white, male. And they were the ones who um, overruled the, the judgment of the black lady judge, Tokozila um, Mosipa, and they said that he was guilty of, of murder, that he should have known that he was going to kill the person behind that bathroom door. This legal saga has lasted nearly five years now, but this morning it took just minutes for a judge to more than double the jail sentence for Oscar Pistorius. And this was a shock. Pistorius wasn't even in court to hear the judge say that up to now, he's been treated with shocking leniency. I, I spent time with him. I saw him during the trial. He actually took me out to lunch, amazingly. Um, it was quite a coup for me to get to see him and get him to talk because he wasn't talking to any other journalists. I got quite friendly with his, with his family. I'll tell you the, the weirdest thing of, I mean, there was, was more than one encounter I had with him, but one in particular, we spent about three hours together. I met him at his uncle's where he was staying. We, he took me out to lunch for an Italian restaurant. You can imagine we had a few glances from the other customers. And then he took me back to his uncle's large, sprawling um, mansion in which there was a, a guest house that was slightly removed from the main building. And that's where Oscar was staying. And he took me in there. And the first thing I saw, it was like a sort of large sort of hotel suite. There was a lounge and a bedroom adjoining. Was There was um, on a mantelpiece, there was above it on the wall, there was a photograph of Riva. And on the mantelpiece, just below the photo of Riva, a lit candle. A lit candle. And this was, you know, in the middle of the trial, maybe, what, a year and a half after he had killed her. And, you know, was he putting on a show for me? Was this, I don't know. I mean, I think that he, you know, whatever actually happened that night, he definitely felt 
something way, way, way beyond just pure remorse at the horror of what she had done. Oscar is serving his sentence now, but he is seeking early parole. The convicted killer has approached the courts to force a parole hearing. Pastorius is said to argue that he has served more than half of his sentence, which makes him eligible for parole. You know, he, uh, if, if it had been another case less high profile, it's possible actually that he could have been out already a year or two ago. That much I know. So, you know, he has behaved apparently, you know, impeccably in prison. He's shown all manner of remorse. Um, you know, he's, he's been in communication with Riva Stinkow's parents to express yet again his sorrow and everything. And, um, you know, I think that legally he's in quite a strong position to get out soon. But there's a sort of political dimension here. There's public perceptions here. There's pressure from the Steenkamp family and uh, it may delay. We don't know. But, but certainly in, in strict legal terms, he could, you know, if he were not Oscar Pistorius, if he were just, you know, Joe Bloggs, he'd be out pretty soon. I, I read recently that he had some uh, communication with, with the father, with Riva Steenkamp's father, um, in a bid to sort of try and you know, enlist his support for his parole, or at least enlist his support not to oppose it. So I don't know what the outcome of that of that exchange was. Oscar Pistorius, you remember him? The man who used a pair of prosthetic legs to become one of the world's fastest runners. Well, he has spent more than six years behind bars after killing his girlfriend. Now the South African is up for parole, and he could be released. But first he has to convince the victim's parents that he is sorry. Now you said you've met the family, you've met Oscar, you've spent time with them. Do you have uh, an opinion on whether Oscar is guilty or not? My hunch, having spent so much time on the book, and then I spent an awful lot of time on a, um, I think it was a six-part documentary series. My hunch is that he's telling the truth, that he did not, that he did not knowingly, deliberately kill Reba Stinker. And my thanks there to journalist and author of Chasing the Shadows, The Trials of Oscar Pistorius, John Carlin. I'm Siobhan Maguire and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced and researched by myself with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from Sky News, CBS This Morning, CNN, Channel 4 News, ESPN, Nike, ITV, Stimuli Licensing and Independent.ie If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.